Hello everyone and welcome to this special podcast presentation. I'm Patrick Gray. What you're about to hear is the speed debating panel from Ossert's 2010 conference. Uh, and so you know, all Risky.biz coverage of Ossert's 2010 event is brought to you by Microsoft Forefront. Thank you, Microsoft. Now, it's always a highlight of the conference, uh, and this year's panel was hosted by Australian media personality guy, dude, uh, Mr. Adam Spencer. And I'll drop you in here as Adam is introducing the panel. Oh, and uh, one thing to note, and this is probably going to cause you a little bit of mental distress later on in this recording, but is it just me or does Max Kilger actually sound like Kermit the Frog? I mean, if you actually shut your eyes and listen to him, it could be Kermit up there on the panel. Anyway, enjoy it. Thank you very much, Mark. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our final session for this conference, the speed debating session. I don't know if you've seen this before. I'm sure several of you have over the last three years. It has become a bit of a tradition of the conference, the great Ossert speed debate. And I shared this in 2008. Oh, nice lights. A bit of mood lighting. I shared this in 2008, and it's great to see that it is still on the agenda. For those of you who haven't seen this formal debate before, it's quite different and one you won't forget in a hurry. Unlike the debating style you might have seen in high school, two teams, each of three speakers, belting on for eight minutes with a warning bell on six on a thrilling topic like that a cap-and-trade system is the best way to reduce carbon emissions in Australia in the 21st century. This afternoon, speed debating will see not one, not two, but six debates, each featuring two teams of anywhere from two to four speakers each plucked from amongst our eight-person panel. The speakers will speak for one minute only, with a warning at 40 seconds, and there is no reason why two speakers who disagreed violently a minute ago won't now be the best of buddies backing each other to help because we've moved on to a new topic and new teams. The parallels between speed debating and speed dating are actually more than just the almost rhyming. In speed debating, as in speed dating, couplings are often fleeting. Conversations can be very brief indeed. And within a minute, you may well have reached a conclusion from which you cannot be swayed. The arguments, the passion, and hopefully the wit will flow thick and fast as we churn through the subject matter. And unlike high school debating, there is no adjudicator. In such more to the point, there are over 200 adjudicators, and I'm looking at you all now. You'll be casting your vote on the cutting-edge and very popular SMS voting system you've been using for the last few days. Now, I know, I know the voting system has been a bit of a, as they say in the marketing world, slow burn. But this is your last chance at OzCert 2010. So splurge a little. Let the speakers know what you think of their performances. You should be familiar with most of them, but let's meet them. Tim Redhead, as of 6pm last night, the OzCert conference page simply said, for our next speaker, no biography has been provided for this presenter yet. Please check again later. This can mean only one thing. Tim Redhead operates beneath the radar. A loner at home on the fringes of society where he's answerable to no one except himself as he dispenses his own brand of justice to every cyber scum and digital dickhead who crosses his path. Either that or he was just too lazy to submit a CV. One of the two. Looking at you, Tim, I'm putting my money on vigilante killing machine. Perhaps we'll know the answer if someone dares sledge you during one of these debates. Scott McIntyre, as you're all about to witness, speed debating is a brutal business. The cauldron of pressure, the avalanche of ideas, the unavoidable reality of the vote spares virtually no one. So what does it say of this man not making his debut tonight, but returning for the third time to the speed debating arena? 
He is a fan of, amongst other things, quality Australian Shiraz wine, so if he wins, the after-party is in his room. He's the Chief Security Officer for XS for All. I'm not sure if that is access for all or excess for all. I do note that it's based in Amsterdam, so perhaps there is a hint there. Uh, Scott McIntyre is one of our speakers today. Our next speaker, like me, Alastair McGibbon, has an arts degree from the University of Sydney. Unlike me, he was for a while there known as Australia's top cyber cop and has graduated from the FBI's National Academy. OK, Alastair, you win. He has spent the afternoon being grilled by the 7.30 report. And given the working over that Kerry O'Brien has recently given both Tony Abbott and Kevin Rudd, I'll be fascinated to watch tonight to see if our top cop cracked under pressure. You'll find out at 7.30 tonight on the ABC, Alastair McGibbon. Jamie Gillespie. I was fascinated when I heard that Jason Gillespie would be on today's panel. <clears throat> I can't wait to hear a range of opinions on internet security, technological advances and threats posed by botnets and malware as voiced by a 35-year-old now-retired mullet hairstyle-wearing Australian fast bowler who took 259 test wickets and had a high score of 201 not out against Bangladesh. <laughs> I then took a closer look at the program and realised it was actually Jamie Gillespie, not Jason Gillespie. Jamie Gillespie, the non-mullet-haired, former senior security analyst with OzCert and now at Google Australia. But he is a lovely guy and was good enough to sign a cricket bat for me out the back before the segment. Please welcome Jamie Gillespie. We also have on the panel Roger Dingledine. Now, Roger leads the Tor project and hence, somewhat ironically, is an expert on anonymity. He researches anonymity, he tutors on anonymity and organises conferences around the world on the topic of anonymity. Or does he? Roger Dingledine, ladies and gentlemen. It really is a top quality panel. Our next panellist, 1962 was an amazing year for men born in New York who would go on to international fame. In 1962, Marcus J. Ranham was born in New York City and in the same year, less than 200 miles away in Syracuse, was born one Thomas Cruz Mapatha IV, or as we now know him, Tom Cruise. One of these New Yorkers would go on to be an international superstar sex symbol, the lust object of women the world over, famed for his smouldering good looks and incredible on-screen presence. The other would marry Nicole Kidman and jump around on Oprah's couch like a goose. That is right. Marcus J. Ranham. He is the top gun of digital security. He invented the original Alta Vista firewall before which we would have all been stumbling around with our eyes wide shut. Indeed, with that breakthrough, he helped make our business a less risky business. Perhaps one day he will render hacking a mission impossible. Marcus Ranham, ladies and gentlemen. Our second last panellist, Paul Gamp. I don't have time to run through all of Paul's credentials. Suffice to say this, he was a trailblazer in Japan and now VP at Red Hat. What really excited me about Paul was he chaired the IPv6 Special Interest Group for APNIC. Now, from my limited understanding of the subject, Internet Protocol version 6 is an address space regime based on a 128-bit address compared to IP4's 32-bit format, which means that whilst V4 is about to fill up, because that's 2 to the power of 32, which of course is 2 times 2 times 2 to the 30, and that's 4 times 
2 to the power of 10 cubed. Now you can approximate, of course, 2 to the 10, round it down from 1,000 and 24 to just 1,000. You've got about 4 billion addresses there. But version 6 will support 2 to the power of 128 addresses, which you don't need me to tell you is roughly 3.4 times 10 to the 38, or just under 350 quintillion, quintillion addresses. Word up to you, Paul Gamp. <clears throat> And can I just say, as was alluded to by Mark, I have a background in pure mathematics, so what I just said there was pretty much pornography <laughs> for me. Our final panellist, a social psychologist, profiler and a director of the HoneyNet project, who's released, amongst other things, the Know Your Enemy series of papers. And when it comes to knowing your enemy, I note that Dr Kilger addressed Congress and other American federal entities on matters of counter-terrorism. Put simply, I'd think twice before I voted against Max on any topic today. His talk at this conference was entitled Black Hat, White Hat, Grey Hat, Red Hat. What Dr Seuss forgot to tell you about the computer hacker community. It's a catchy title, but if I can recommend one in keeping with the Dr Seuss theme next year, I'd like to see you speak on I do not like, I do not like green eggs and ham, but what really shits me more is spam. <laughs> Please welcome Max Kilgar. I have given our panel very strict writing instructions today. There is no fence in this room for them to sit on. They are here to provoke thought, to say things that are controversial. If you're erring between, this is what I really think, this is what I could say for the debate, but it could be in a bit of trouble, go to those troubled, dark places. They are not going to be held accountable for individual things they say today. It's not necessarily the opinions of their organisations, their governments or themselves. They are here to make us all think. Are we ready to rumble, people? Yeah! Let's get our first topic up here on the screen. Social networking is so popular now that using the internet to communicate with the majority of users requires that you pay admission with your personal information, putting you at risk from identity theft, cyber slander and bullying at OWL. Our first speaker will be Max Kilger. Max, your time starts now. Great. As a profiler, I think uh, uh, social networking is like some sort of huge amount of incredible insanity. I just can't believe that people put this stuff on there. It's like shooting fish in a barrel. It's inviting stolen identities, link-ups, and uh, getting beaten by people. Uh, your future employer will look at you and go, I don't want to hire this guy. Um, it's, uh, uh, it's a national security risk for people in other countries, you know, glomming onto stuff and figuring out what they can do to you. Uh, and you're forced into it. If you're not on a social network, you're like the socially homeless. And, and you just, that's, that's just not cool. So uh, it's just seconds. a mess. Okay, done. There you go. Okay, Max, I love your definition of a minute too. Okay, our second speaker first to oppose this motion, Paul Gamp. Fire away, Paul. Thank you. And with all due respect, Max, I completely disagree. Social networks have come and gone. I've been on the internet since the mid-90s. We had bulletin boards prior to that. They are things that are simply a trend. They will evolve and they will devolve. Look at uh, you know, Facebook. I may have deleted my Facebook account today prior to this talk to verify that the numbers are declining, but that, I believe, is true. I actually looked at the <clears> Facebook account today. Then uh, I may have done it after that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> And the question states here that communication, to, to communicate to a broad audience of people, you'll need to be part of a social network. And that I also completely disagree 40 with. 40 seconds. 
It is a form of sharing. The reason these social networks form, because they want to share information. Communicating is something completely different. Thank you very much, Paul. Okay, our next speaker was meant to be Frank Stajano, who has passed on his apologies. Frank was feeling ill this afternoon and will not be part of today's panel. That takes us then to the, a, a negative. We have a bit of an advantage here, having three speakers against two. Take it away, Alastair McGibbon. Well, thank you. I thought I had a minute to go to write some points. Look, broadcasting on the internet still exists. It's not all peer-to-peer. -peer. It's not all uh, done via social networks. We all know that. And it's interesting that Roger is speaking in favour of this motion because I just used the Tor project to go online, register as Mickey Mouse, as there are already a million or so of them uh, on every social network, and I would go about my business. You don't have to use your real name and address. I used to work at eBay, remember, and um, many people didn't use their real name there, unless they actually bought an item and they wanted it shipped to their home. So the reality is, as we go about our business on the internet, there's a whole range of information we might have to give, depending on the activity we're undertaking. If we're just chatting... 40. ...then I can be Mickey Mouse. If I bought goods as Mickey Mouse, then I might have to give my real address and possibly my real name. But remember this one thing the famous New Yorker cartoon. On the internet, nobody knows you're a dog. Okay, our next speaker for the... Don't, don't be shy. Throw in some applause there if you'd like, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, absolutely. Our final speaker for the affirmative on the social networking topic is Roger. Dingletine, take it away. Roger. So just, Paul, the first answer is uh, you can't delete your Facebook account. They're not, they don't let you do that. But anyway, so going back to the topic, uh, I guess the first thing, I can't understand why anybody would argue against this. I mean, the only argument I can imagine is I'm a big, I'm a big fan of Web 0.9 and I don't really want to interact with the rest of the world. All, every time you interact with anybody out there, you are providing some sort of personal information. You can choose how much to provide. I agree with Alistair. But let me give you a couple of points to counter that. So the first one, I don't actually have a Facebook account. But I get mail every week from Facebook saying, the following is your social network. Here are all of your friends. Here are all of your friends' friends. I've given them nothing. They know everything about me. All of the people who show up there upload their database and their contacts information. 40 seconds. Gmail gives them all this stuff. These are the people who provide all of that. I don't even get to choose whether I'm going to be sharing all my personal information. The second piece of that... Uh, Google's Picasso thing, they're trying to do facial recognition of six billion people. They've actually found a good way to do it by having a few people label who's in which picture, and then they can really narrow down by the social network who they should try to compare the facial recognition to. So there are all sorts of ways out there that huge Five corporations uh, end up building large databases. You've got no control over that. Okay, thank you very much, Roger. And to wrap up, yeah, come on, let's get it going here, people. And I want to see that sort of passion when it comes to the votey-votey too, not just the clappy-clappy. The final speaker for the negative on this topic is Tim Redhead. Take it away, Tim. Oh, thanks for that. Um, I guess it's easy to see uh, why there's absolutely... Uh, this question it can, can be uh, demonstrated to be false. Um, because when we look at it really, despite what the team uh, four has described as, you know, catastrophic... Um, databases full of files and images about me and the things I've done, uh, the places I go and so forth, it still doesn't really amount uh, to paying admission for anything, in fact, because a simple premise of paying admission is that you have to have something that's actually worth something. And nothing about me, <laughs> and nothing about me is worth a cent. <laughs> and that's the end of my... <laughs> Thank you. Okay, there you go. Well, you've had both cases laid out for you. Let's bring up the voting slide. 
You could choose between two signs here. Do you go for Max shooting fish in a barrel? Do you vote for Roger and his friends and his friends, 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 friends? Do you vote for Alistair McGibbon, the top cop who just wants to be Mickey Mouse, or Tim Redhead, a man so boring even he wouldn't pay to know about himself? Ladies and gentlemen, you've got a few seconds there. What we're going to do here, because it does take time for the uh, data to amass and we're just racing through, we'll move on to the next topic each time and we'll show you the results of all the debates at the end of the session. So you've got a couple more seconds there to put your vote in. As we move on to our next topic. Our next topic is cloud computing is just another fad technology and decisions to adopt it will be reversed once people understand the security risks are too high. Is there a silver lining to the cloud that is cloud computing? What I'm going to do here, because we are one speaker down, is start with the negative. So Paul, you will take off here talking against the topic. Take it away, Paul Gamp. Absolutely, and I could not be more passionate about this. Cloud computing is inevitable. The only thing new about cloud computing is the name. We've been doing this technology for years. It can be done securely. I'm not saying that's going to be easy, but it can be done securely. Second point is the reason clouds occur is a simple supply-demand curve. There will always be requirements for more computing capacity, whether it's a film company in LA trying to render a film faster than it has in the past, needing to expand in to get additional capacity. There will always be somebody to supply where there's demand. It's inevitable that the, as companies get larger, the dependence on IT and computing increases, that there will be a continuous demand. And where there's demand, there will be supply. It's inevitable that cloud will happen. Thank you very much, Paul. To take up the cudgel speaking for the topic, Max Kilcher. All yours, Max. Um, okay. Um, it, uh, cloud computing bucks the trend that we're seeing right now. Everybody is sort of having their data come towards them. You've got iPhones, you've got iPads. All the data is basically coming towards you. And uh, why would you want to put data out there in a cloud? What does a cloud do? It kind of pisses on you, right? So, yeah. And what kind of security? It's like, oh, look, it's Ahmed in his security cloud. Oh, I'm safe now. So, you know, it's just... It's 10 p.m. In the U.S., they used to have uh, this statement. They put it on television at 10 p.m. It's 10 p.m. Do you know where your child is? And I want to say, it's 10 p.m. Do you know where your data is? Anyway, so... 40 I seconds. I only, have, I only have two words for that. Uh, people really want to own their media, and they want to have media close to them, and they want to go, oh, my precious, my precious media, yes. Thank you very much, Max. That sounded to me like more than two words, but I liked it. Marcus Ranum, take up the case for the negative, please. Well, cloud computing is just another form of software as a service or outsourcing. And outsourcing is just another form of running someone else's code. Using an operating system that you didn't code yourself is what everybody else does. And therefore, being on a network is being in the cloud. Everybody's doing cloud computing and has always been doing cloud computing, except for the very small number of people who actually code all of their own stuff. The fundamental problem with cloud computing is that you're relying on somebody else. And what we troglodytes are basically saying is that's really not such a great idea, right? After all, we know the Internet is a cloud of tubes, um, and the data is out there someplace in the cloud, and we must not let it get moist. But joking, joking aside, right, if we look at the question of the proposition, the notion is that 
the, the trend to adopt it will be reversed once people understand the security risks are too high. So in order for this proposition to be true, people would have to be able to understand security risk. I submit that's a category error. In the form of scientific speaking, Five I would seconds. say that question is not even wrong. <laughs> oh, I like a bit of logical dirty talk. Thank you very much, Marcus. Okay, to take up the cudgels for the affirmative, final speaker, Scott McIntyre. So I've got my glass of liquid courage here, which is really going to help in my response, I guarantee that. Marcus, your point about outsourcing being essentially running someone else's code, I think you should listen to the words you just said. Someone else's code. The cloud cannot be made secure. It is someone else's code, but your data that's manipulating with it. Indeed, I would like to argue that outsourcing is directly responsible for the fall of the Roman Empire. They couldn't get local talent, so they had to have all these other people try to take up arms on behalf of Rome. Look how well that worked out for them. And indeed, just like Max said, data is coming to the person. Data is becoming personal. We've got our iPads, we've got our Blackberries, we've got all this information coming to us. The next round of this stuff, when this fad passes, is all this information back in front of us. Every now and then, these fads come 40 and go. seconds. In and out, in and out. Sorry, I'm thinking of Amsterdam again. Um... <laughs> Just think of what HTML5 is going to be doing to your data. You're going to have a whole new attack surface. You're going to have to worry about the cloud security, the application security, and the client security. Five seconds. A whole new series of problems all coming to you courtesy of the cloud. Say no. Okay, pass that microphone to Roger Dingledon. Take it away, Roger. So Max and Scott both just talked about how cloud computing is insecure and therefore nobody will do it. What does security have to do with what people do? <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, it, yes, it's another fad. I'm okay with that. The web is another fad. There are a lot of other fads, but it's just too cheap. There are just too many reasons, too many business reasons to do your stuff out on the rest of the internet. So, yes, it's insecure. That's fine. That doesn't matter. People are going to keep doing it. I mean, for years, the people in the U.S. have been outsourcing stuff to India. Every week we hear about a new company in India 40 that, seconds. Just, that just screwed up a bunch of corporate databases and stuff like that. And they keep doing it. It's cheaper. It works better. There are plenty of companies around the world who go to Google and give them their data. They're going to keep doing it. It works Five better. Five seconds. Okay, there you go. That was a passionate debate, wasn't it? You've got 30 seconds to lodge your votes. Who do you go for here? You've got, you've got uh, one team. I, I, get the, I must admit I was technologically out of my depth for most of that discussion. A fair bit of it on the negative seemed to be talking about computing. On the affirmative, it was mainly Roman history and meteorology. But I liked it. I liked it. And I get the impression, Paul, you're going to start every speech you give with, I could not be more be passionate about this topic. Okay, well, we'll take that as read from you, Paul, to save time for the rest of the debate. Paul is just a passionate type of guy, okay? Take that. You've got five more seconds to vote. We'll reveal the votes at the end. That was our second debate. Our third topic is that educating users on information security, if it was going to work, it would have worked by now. Our third topic... Educating users on information security. If it was going to work, it would have worked by now. Your thoughts, please. Marcus Ranham. <laughs> the definition of insanity is trying the same thing over and over again, and when it doesn't work, going, I'm going to try it harder. You're expecting a different result. It simply isn't going to work. We all understand. Our users don't need an education. They just need a thrashing. There you go. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you have set a record there for the speed debates. 18 seconds I had that as, including the casual glass of water before we started. Against the topic, Jamie Gillespie. 
Well, there's nothing wrong with a, uh, a good old thrashing every now and then. There is a bit of carrot in the stick every, here and there. Um, looking at uh, driving and cars and stuff like that. You've got learner drivers. You've got driver's education. You've got driver's licenses. People still break the laws. But, yeah, <laughs> but think about what happens when people don't get that education. Think about what the world would be like if we didn't have driver's education, if we didn't have information security education. We need new ways to educate, possibly subliminal messaging. Maybe the direct approach isn't the best way to go. It's true that there's no patch for stupidity, but I believe that education is a patch for ignorance for the users. Thank you very much, Jamie. These arguments are coming thick and fast. What do you think, Roger? We make security tools, and they suck. They're impossible to use. Why are we going to users and trying to make them use tools that are unusable? We need to make security tools that are actually usable. Every week or so, some new book publisher comes to me and says, I want you to write a book on how to use Tor safely. If you need a whole book on how to use Tor safely, I've done something really, really wrong. I need to make my software good enough that people can use it without needing a book for it. So it's worse than that. Let's go out and teach people how to use SSL correctly. There I am in Turkey doing trainings for people. Turkish Telecom owns a CA. They can sign whatever they want to. How do we as security people actually know how to make these good security decisions? How do we teach other people if we don't know how to make the decisions? Security tools are really hard to use. We need to fix that, not go to the users and blame them. Okay, thank you very much, Roger. Scott McIntyre, over to you. I don't really have a full minute, so I'm going to take a sip of wine on this one. No, I'm um, so something that Roger just said triggered my mind. You know, I've done something wrong. I think that's really what this comes down to. I haven't completely given up on user education, but I've given up on some of the educators. I think that our ability to convey a clean, a clear message that our users can understand, that's where the failure is. So I don't think we necessarily have to change the message. I think we have to change the delivery vehicle. Walk around that showroom floor, no offense to the vendors, but it's a self-perpetuating disaster of, uh, of bad terminology, of increasing fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And when that becomes part of our message, no wonder 40. we think that we are failing in educating people on how to be secure and safe online. Our jargon isn't helping. We're giving them conflicting and confusing terms. We've got this self-perpetuating economy. And I really think that we need to look at ourselves as the makers of the tools, like Tor, Five. so that it is easy for people to use and the message is understood. Thank you, Scott. You've earned that drink. Tim Redhead, over to you. Uh, despite, uh, despite Jamie's uh, passion for uh, carrots, sticks and subliminal messages, um, I think we can be quite confident that uh, if it was going to work, it, it would have worked by now. Um, it, it isn't going to work. Um, in fact, we're not educating users uh, for information security, we're um, educating users against them. We're going to uh, convince them to stick all their personal data up on Facebook. We're going to treat them to some impossible uh, patching regimes on their PCs. Um, we're going to send them to work in the cloud or something and get pissed on, I think. And we're going to all lodge them all with smartphones and uh, iPads so that uh, their data is easy, even easier to get at than, than it was yesterday. Um, users don't have a chance in this environment. Um, there's no chance that educating users for security will work because you make a lot more money educating users against security. And at the end of the day, big business always wins. Thank you. Okay, Tim, okay. Yeah, spicy. Not necessarily a popular line with some people down the front, but I respect you for saying it, Tim. Alistair McGibbon, wrap this one up. I'm detecting a very negative view towards education from some, and, and you know, we shouldn't just look at this from an IT security point of view. You know, how well have we done in educating kids in schools, but we don't stop 
trying to refine education. I see some university people around here. We're constantly looking to improve the way we engage people. Clearly, with the explosion of the uptake of technology and the complexity of the things that we're now doing online, we are failing at the moment to educate people. I agree. But it doesn't mean that we should stop because we haven't truly started. What we haven't done yet is recognise the scale and we haven't recognised the way in which to input, I think to Jamie's point, on, on, on changing user behaviour. But to, but to give up on education online, to give it up online would 40. be that we should give it up offline as well, and I think we all know that would be a fallacy. Look, the simple reality is this. What we need if we want to change user behaviour on a large scale is a public health-style campaign where we agree on the one or... Thank you sir, in the third row. Look, uh, look, we agree on the one or two things we want to change and we hammer it home because this is not just IT security vulnerabilities and a, a buffer overflow and all those other things. This is human behaviour and you change human behaviour by designing better code, better to use, to your point, Roger, but you teach people one. how to use it most effectively. Thank you very much, Alistair. Okay. <laughs> well, that's our topic, educating users on information security. If it was going to work, it would have worked by now. Your chance to vote for affirmative or negative on the numbers there. I think what it really comes down to is, do you support a good thrashing or a good subliminal thrashing? They were the two philosophies that were pretty much put forward. And also, I thought Roger's very frank confession that I make things that suck. There was an honesty there that really did grab me, Roger, and I respect you for saying it. OK, we're going to wrap up the phones on that one very quickly. Keep those votes coming. These guys are doing, I think, a fantastic job. It's pretty entertaining. We do want to see some numbers at the end of it, so please make sure... I feel, I feel like I'm hosting Australian Idol. Please make sure you vote. Your vote, sir, is very important. If you don't vote, he might not get through to the next round, and that would be tragic. OK. Our next topic, that internet users are making a conscious decision to ignore good security... Now, that is an entirely rational response from an economic perspective. The indirect cost of security is usually greater than the direct costs they suffer from being attacked, so they reject the bargain offered by security advisers. It's a fairly big topic. <laughs> That's why we allocated four people per side. Frank's not here, so it is still a whopping seven. It's, a, it's an all-in rumble. When I say all-in, I mean all-in except for you, Scott. So what we're going to do here is um, I'm going to put Scott in Frank's position. Yeah, why not? OK. I'll put, you with, I'll put you at the end of the affirmative team in Frank's position so you've at least got time to read the topic before you start, Scott. But Jamie, Jamie Gillespie, kick us off on this one, please. Oh, it's such a big topic. I think I might let a few people read it a bit again. I'm having to read this three or four times myself. Um, luckily, there's not too many double negatives. Uh, I believe this is true. And the reason I think that this is, is so true for people is that most people haven't actually experienced loss. Um, people always value their time higher um, than what other people would value other people's time. I think what we need to do is we need to actually encourage people to experience loss earlier in life. So I'm thinking as, as people are born, as birth certificates are being done right there, there should be some identity theft, there should be a little bit of financial <laughs> loss happening. You, and you, a good thrashing. You, you start in debt. <laughs> You know, and that comes back to the education. You could educate people right from 40. getting their identity stolen at, uh, at birth. So, um, you know, tying in with the last one, absolutely. People value their time too highly. They need to lose it every now and then. Okay, that's Jamie, who I think we'll also probably be seeing on the 7.30 report tonight. Paul Gamp, over to you. Well, I wasn't particularly passionate about this topic until the threat of having my child, uh, <coughs> having identity theft of birth came along. So now I am rather passionate about yeah, this excellent. one. I think there's a pretty clear problem with this 50-word, 54-word sentence. Let's dissect it at the start here. <clears throat> Good security advice. 
If we were giving good security advice, would we all be here? I think the answer is no. So let's start with the premise that we're not giving good security advice, that the responsibility for delivering secure internet infrastructure is a responsibility of the people running the internet infrastructure and offloading both the economic 40. and educational tasks to the consumer is our fault and not, not appropriate. Okay, Paul, you've rediscovered the passion. Roger, over to you. The economists have a whole field on this stuff. It's called externality. If you break into other people's computers, you infect them with spyware and malware and all that stuff, they don't actually mind very much. Their computer slows down a little bit. Sometimes they have to reinstall. Whatever. Most of the damage happens to the other people that they attack. They don't care about that. The damage happens to other people who, I mean, you can't go to the other companies and say, please educate the users over there in order to make them stay safe. The damage happens to other people. What do the users care? And when the antivirus scam industry and the firewall scam industry come to them and try to teach them what they need and sell them software, 40. come on. Nice. Max, Kilja, your uh, thoughts on this topic. Okay. Uh, oh, ooh, there are a lot of words here. I don't know. I got one word for this. Crap. That's what this stuff is. <laughs> if you look at the academic research, it shows that people are just piss-poor risk evaluators. They, they process risk in a very nonlinear fashion. Otherwise, we wouldn't have casinos. We wouldn't have insurance. And Tiger Woods wouldn't be going, I hit one interest. I bet I can, I can hide 19. Not a problem. So anyway, uh, people really don't understand how people behave in an economic manner. So I just can't take this statement seriously at all. 40 seconds, okay. Tim Redhead, can you take this statement seriously? What are your thoughts? Uh, it's clearly, clearly a rational decision that internet users are making. Um, they sit down long and hard. You know that they understand the topics that they're facing. <laughs> this is a room full of smart people and you understand just how well they understand what we understand. <laughs> what I'm trying to say is we understand. No, I'm not. No, what I'm saying is <laughs> this is a rational decision. The question is even more you know, highlighted by the second sentence, which starts off with the indirect cost of security. Indirect cost? Do you know how much I charge an hour? Direct cost is what we're talking about. The user's decision is very rational, well-based, Forty, and I'm out of work. Thank you. Okay, Tim, thank you very much. Marcus Renham, throw yourself into the thick of this one. Everything, everything I learned about risk management came from Donald Rumsfeld. There are unknowns, and there are known unknowns, and there are unknown known unknowns, and there's externalities. And the problem is that economists come up with all this wanking back and forth about cost evaluations and cost justifications. And I don't know about you, but I haven't met a single grandmother who's capable of making an adequate assessment as to whether 1995 a year for antivirus is justified versus her time in having her grandson reinstall windows every so often. This is absolutely ridiculous. You cannot understand the downside costs. You cannot predict the upside benefits, right? You cannot do any kind of cost modeling. You, can't, you may as well rely on a horoscope or, or perhaps a Ouija board if what you really want to do is figure out whether this is an appropriate risk 40. to run or not. And I can show you, case in point, expecting users to make a rational decision about anything involving at, uh, internet security is proven to be fallacious by the Kaspersky strip club that we had going on outdoors the other day. As, as Bill Cheswick once said, any piece of social engineering attached to a pair of breasts is going to succeed. Okay. <clears throat> Marcus, you did strictly go over a minute, but you got on one of my favorite subjects right near the end there. Did I? 
I did give you a bit of extra time. Let's welcome now someone who did not know he was part of this particular topic until a few seconds ago. Scott, what are your well-reasoned, long-held positions on this subject? When I originally saw this question, I responded back to Mark saying, sorry, this question's too long. I got bored reading it halfway through and just stopped. So I'm having to wing this one a little bit. I'm actually going to go a little bit on the strip club theme because, you know, why not? Um, I think that the point there is actually a good one. People make the decision to go with what they understand. What do they understand? Sex. Sex sells. So when people are making the decision to invest in things or not invest in things based upon what we are telling them. It goes back to the previous issue. What are the tools like? What is the risk like for them? So people are deciding not to take action simply because they don't see a reason to take action. And you know what? I don't argue with that. I think that's actually right. The vast majority of internet traffic is good and clean, and we can get by with doing just absolutely anything without any risk to ourselves. 40. The actual number of people who get infected in most customer networks is probably less than one fraction of 1%. So most of this stuff is snake oil. So they are making a rational economic decision. Should they invest in better graphics card for their high-speed gaming and porn, or should they invest in tools that may not affect them anyway? It's a perfectly reasonable and rational expectation and decision to make. Okay, thank you very much, Scott. And the final speaker on the negative. Getting used to wrapping up on the negative side here. Do it again, yeah. please, Alistair McGibbon. I'm ready to win, too. Look, the reality is, Scott, you're not, you've not met enough victims. You've not met enough people who've lost their identity. Okay, that fraction of 1% there in Amsterdam I don't think is representative of the broader internet. The reality is far too many people are losing far too much stuff that they can't value. What is my date of birth? What is my middle name? What's my mother's maiden name worth to me when it's out in the wild? What's the reality of once I've lost banking credentials and I need to re-establish them and I can't get my next mortgage hard enough as it is? Um, once someone else has trashed uh, more than the McGibbon family can do themselves. The reality is, the reality, and we, could, we do a hard job at doing it too, by the way, but look, the reality is once someone else has gained access to my computer and has then gone and taken my credentials and trashed them, what's that worth to me? 40. The trouble is the average punter out there doesn't know what they're losing on a daily basis, and as a consequence, they do not make a rational decision to not install IT security. They don't make a rational decision not to visit the Russian porn site. They just do what they think they're meant to be doing because no one has really told them properly to the Five. last point. And we haven't designed effective software to prevent a lot of the flaws from occurring. So we can't blame the end user Two. for bad product... And a, and a dirty net. One. Zero. Okay. What a debate. Yeah, give them a round of applause. That was an exchange of ideas. Though essentially, if you like to vote, you're choosing between compulsory identity theft at birth and the Kaspersky Strip Club. Your choice. I don't judge you for whichever decision you make when confronted with those two options. You've got a few seconds. Send those votes through. We've only got two topics left in this afternoon's speed debate before we reveal all of the decisions on all Adam, of the topics. And is it bad if I vote against my own team? No, nothing wrong with that at all. No, so no, I've been no, voting no. up here and I need some other phones if you can send yeah, them. Vote, feel free to vote against your own team. And don't remind, please remind me of your middle name later too, please. Threat information overload is our next topic. Threat information overload has desensitised the community to the point where security planning is no longer a priority. In the absence of Frank Tejano, I will start on the negative here. So Max, you're going to lead us off here speaking against this topic. Max Kilger. Uh, if, if we thought this was true, uh, we wouldn't be here at this conference, really. Um, I think you should look at new threats as challenges to learn in advance. You know, it always takes more energy to accelerate to your cause than just to stay at the same velocity. Um, do you, you look out in the audience? Do you want your name and face 
on the wall of sheep? I don't think so. So anyway, I think that people are working really hard. They work night and day. They're really passionate. I've seen lots of passionate people all over the world um, working on security stuff all the time. And uh, I, I think it's, I think it's a, a truly noble cause, and we should keep at it. Thank you very much, Max. Scott McIntyre, your thoughts on this topic? Well, you know, something you just said there, Max, was interesting about that we wouldn't be here at this conference. I would take the completely the opposite point of view. I think we all know that the number of, the number, for a number of us, the main reason we're here is to network, is to get to know one another and to be able to solve problems direct person to person. Indeed, that's to get around the information overload of all of the acronyms, all of the problems, all of the viruses and signatures and the updates that are out there. Remember once upon a time, McAfee made a product called Stinger where you can put all the really important virus updates on a single floppy disk? No way could you do that now. You'll need a CD-ROM, you'll need a DVD, you'll need who knows what in the very near future. I think that every time we look at the press, we're told that it's end times for the internet. We're told that Storm is going to bring down the internet in Configard last year, and this year we've heard a lot about Zeus and all sorts of other banking Trojans. We're also being told 40. all the time, at any moment, the whole thing is going to fall down, but it doesn't. I think that any of you who haven't actually worked for the uh, help desk of an ISP really need to. When they find out what's happening in the press, the first thing they do is they call their provider. I heard about something on the internet, I don't get it, what do I do? Five. And the same thing is applying to managers who are being forced into position of management by spreadsheet, and that's always a failure. Okay, thank you very much, Scott. Marcus Ranham, negate this topic, please. Mr. President, I am reluctant to make a mere debater's argument, but this is a debate. And as I sit here and parse this question carefully over and over again, the proposition is obviously false because it presupposes that security planning was once at any time a priority of the users, <laughs> which it never has been, I beg to oppose. Oh, I really wanted you on my team in high school. That would have been... I don't, think you've actually, I don't think you've actually accepted the existence of any topic yet, Marcus. I love this. I am a nihilist. <laughs> Paul, if you believe there is a topic here, feel free to give me your opinions on said topic. I believe there's a topic here. Excellent. Threat I presume you're passionate about it. No, no, I'm trying to be passionate, but I'm not. Okay. Uh, but fortunately, <laughs> fortunately, I've got all of my topics or all of my uh, arguments presented to you today. So uh, the prior speaker here was uh, John Stewart, Cisco security officer, and he talked about a tenfold increase in traffic by 2015, a 50 to 100-fold increase in security vectors. That's a massive increase in the sort of exposures. His intrusion detection system he described had 2 million hits a day. If that's not information overload, I don't know what is. Max made the point earlier that humans make very poor prioritisation decisions. I'm going to choose between reacting, which humans do faster. We react faster than we plan. I'm going to make 40. a decision about reacting or planning based on that return on investment. And if I'm getting two million intrusion detection events a day, I can't. I ha it's overload. I have to react. Thank you very much, Paul. Today wouldn't be a, it wouldn't be a debate without a final speaker, who was Alastair McGibbon. Take it away, Alastair. It wouldn't, would it? Look, um, I'm going to say what I've said at Ausert over several years, and that is we have a, a dysfunctional disconnect between IT security practitioners and the broader public. You guys might have threat overload. You guys might say that we're getting two million plus threats a day or a week or a minute. That's fantastic. But to the average man or woman in the street, they do not understand. 
And our job is to translate the technical, to translate all those spreadsheets and log files and those other things to be understandable by the broader public. They are not yet overloaded and they need to. If we want social change, if you want user behaviour change, educate them by giving them the facts in a way that they understand. Don't talk in the language that you use. Talk in a language that they understand. It's basic marketing. For the them. IT security community has failed to market to the broader public. They can do the scaring bit, that's fine, but they haven't told them where the actual nuances are of the information lost and the damage that's being done. Real social change will only occur, for example, when we have data breach laws in this country, Five where seconds. people actually know that their identity has been stolen, and that companies, maybe like the one beside me, when they lose it, get fined for losing it or stealing it from us during their Wi-Fi exercise for Street View. Thank you very much, Alistair. Yes, viva the revolution, ladies and gentlemen. There'll be ones and zeros in the street. Okay. If you want to vote, oh, hello. If you want to vote, 45A if you are for this topic, 45B if you are against. Keep the votes coming. You only have one final chance after this debate to vote. The wall of sheep, you said, Max. I think that's a nightclub I visited once. <laughs> Very edgy. Okay. Our final topic this evening in our speed debate festival is cyber security activism and vigilantism enhances security. This is a seven-person debate. Frank Absent, you're already involved in this one, Scott. I'm not even going to joke about offering you a second chance to speak because God knows you'd take it. Would any of our remaining... Who are the two people who aren't involved in this? Do any of them want to hop in on the negative? It's our last... Yep, okay, so who's... You're already in there? Yeah. Paul. Paul, I know you're passionate about this topic. Here we are, our final topic of the evening, ladies and gentlemen. Let's get the, give them a big round of applause. Let's get them revved up for this final bloodbath. Take it away, big Maxi Kilger. Come on! Okay, here we go. Ah, uh, I, I really think that when people push the envelope, when you break stuff, when you find exploits, uh, when you reveal things, you really make us a safer place. I really do. I think it's so important. Um, and, and, in terms of, uh, of vigilantes, you know, sometimes you just can't play fair. You're going to beat somebody with the biggest stick you can find. So anyway, uh, sometimes you have to take matters into your own hands and use overwhelming force to take out something that's threatening you. No more Mr. Nice Guy. That's what I think. Okay, thank you very much, Max. To lead off the opposition, unfamiliar territory. Commence the case, please, Alistair McGibbon. Well, vigilantes are fundamentally flawed offline and they're fundamentally flawed online. The last thing we need is, is lawless people going about enforcing their own law that they see right. We see far too many examples, both on and offline, of people that say what they're doing is for the right cause and they're doing it for the wrong reasons. So we can't afford it offline, we can't afford it online. For those people who are, who are busy uh, being uh, cybersecurity activists, go get a job. Go get a job working for one of the companies that you're being too critical of because it's really easy to be a piss and moan complainer. Go and write some secure stuff yourself. I have. That is the other problem with the IT security community. You're all too smart for your own good and spend the rest of your time trying to prove everyone else is more stupid than you. Why don't you go about doing something 40. positive like the rest of us have to do? And, and, and absolutely it is. Look, the reality is this. You can't afford vigilantes on the streets outside here. You can't afford it inside here. And we should vote against. OK, thank you very much, Alistair McGibbon. 
who'll be leaving by a private back entrance to the conference room sometime before the end of this debate. You look up and he'll be gone. OK, Marcus Ranham is keen. He had his microphone in his hand halfway through Alistair's speech. Fire away, Marcus. You're off the leash. I believe I just heard us being blamed for having a sense of right and wrong. What is this? What is this? Cybersecurity activism. What is cybersecurity activism? I submit to you that cybersecurity activism is every single open source security product that was written by somebody who felt that they were going to solve a problem in order to make things better. Sure, sometimes they've monetized it yet. But you are blaming the heroes who produced things like Nessus, IPFilt, ModSSL, SSH. You are insulting the heroes of cyberspace by calling us mere activists. And then to the vigilantes, I know my partner in crime, Max, here cannot blow his own horn. 40. Very tunefully, anyway. But um, the heroes <laughs> of cyber vigilantism are our own sixth column in cyberspace, the, the, the HoneyNet research project, the people who are out there seeing what the bad guys are doing. This is a purely vigilante activity. And the other heroes of vigilantism out there, I will remind you, Five. are the wonderful people who are out there screwing with the heads of Nigerian 411 scammers and giving us all a great chuckle every morning. And I think we should honor those heroes rather than deriding them. Thank you very much, Marcus Ram. Paul, fire away, please. Well, I'm very fortunate to have a policeman on, uh, on the against team, so I'm uh, going to continue that argument. It doesn't work offline. It won't work online. Two reasons why it's going to be even worse. The more that we promote the use of vigilantism to attack attackers, the more they're going to learn. The more they'll, we'll be able to teach them new techniques, they're going to be able to learn from us, and that's exactly the wrong outcome that we want to achieve. And more importantly for this audience, system administrators are generally governed by a code of ethics. They're in charge of people's data. And if we cross that line and blur the bridge, blur the gap between 40. a security expert who can help you into a vigilante who may one day attack you, we completely debase the value of this, you know, of, of this cost, of the, everything we're doing here. Okay, thank you very much, Paul. Passions are coming to the boil. I love it. Jamie Gillespie, your final contribution this afternoon in favour of this topic. Um, I'm, I'm against you, but with them, so it's all, all good in my side. Um, vigilantism, in, in the internet sense, it's just crowdsourcing. You know, you're using the, the masses to, you know, work towards a greater good. Isn't Linux just activism and vigilantism against other software providers that are out there, Microsoft. Um, <laughs> social networking sites have been using this for years. How else are you going to police 24 hours of video that's being uploaded every minute of every day of every week of every month throughout the year? There's no way that a single entity can do it. If it wasn't for the script kiddies that are out there, we wouldn't know about a lot of the exploits that are going on. 40. They take these little exploits, they bring them up into the light, they let everyone see what's going on, and we can protect ourselves. It's better to have a group of vigilantes out there working for us than to have the masses just sitting back and accepting what is going wrong on the internet. Okay, we move towards our final, yeah, three speakers in this debate. I called him a renegade, a vigilante, a man who often be on the fringe before the debate. Let's see what he thinks. Take it away, Tim Redhead. I'm glad this topic came last. Really, it's shown the true colours of the opposing team in the colours that they should be shown in. First of all, we begin with desperate attempts to clutch at the greatness of free and open source software developers and somehow align that with the psychotic madness which is the vigilante and the activist. Then we move on to see Max, who wants to beat me with a stick, and Marcus with his stereotypical attacks against the impoverished people from another country. This is... <laughs> 
there is no there is no limit to what this will go. So let me just answer you, ask you this question. If we, took, if we put aside their hubris and their rubbish, how is me breaking into your house and stealing your stereo helping, your informa- helping the security of your dwelling? 40. How is me breaking into your database and stealing your Facebook photos helping your online security? A blatantly nonsensical proposition which should be quashed, as I believe I've effectively done. Thank you. Thank you very much, Tim. Nothing wrong with having tickets on yourself. Well spoken indeed. Roger Dingledine, your final submission for the afternoon, please. Bad guys on the internet are doing great. You're welcome to go protect your own networks. That sounds great. What about the bad guys in other countries? What about the people in Australia on cable modem that are jam-packed with malware and attacking people all over the place? Are you going to leave it to the cops? Is that the plan? There are not very many people out there who are actually good at protecting the internet and cleaning things up, and not very many people who have the authority to do it. One of my side hobbies is going to talk to law enforcement and teaching them about internet security. Once I'm done teaching them about internet security, they go get a better job. This is a tough world to live in. There aren't very many people out there who actually have the ability and the authority to go clean things up. Somebody's got to do it. Thank you very much, Roger. Our final speaker on this final topic, your thoughts, I'm I'm guessing from the furrowed brow and the reaching for the wine glass, you're still coming to your opinion on this. What does it happen to be, Scott? You're nuts. So (laughs) he he asks, you know, should we leave it to the cops? No, we should leave it to us, the certs, the C-certs. Isn't that what we're here for? Isn't this part of our job? We don't want to have activists going out there. We don't want to have this unknown blurry line between the good guys and the bad guys. Look at the number of really bad bad guys who are now getting jobs in IT security. They're working for the highest bidder. They did it before. They're doing it again. Is that the kind of mentality we want people to trust? Absolutely not. A few years ago, the FBI and the Dutch police actually worked together to take down a botnet. Part of their technique was to flash a pop-up on someone's screen saying, hey, look out, you've been infected with malware. Click here to continue. Isn't that what the bad guys do? That's activism. That's vigilantism. That is not something that we can expect or should be something that comes from a career uh, of mature people who have rational responses such as us in this room. We must lead by example. And going back to something that was said a little bit earlier, that um, Max, you didn't want to stand up for Max who was blowing his own horn, although Max was talking about taking matters into his own hands, so we'll just sort of leave it at that. Okay, yes, we will leave it at that. Thank you very much, Scott. Deary me. What a high point on which to wrap it up. Thank you, Scott. I'm glad I gave you that extra few seconds. This, this debate comes down to who do you back here? Are you, going, are you going to defend the heroes of cyberspace or are you on the side of the piss and moan complainers? <laughs> you have those numbers there at, at which to register your vote. When we close down the voting on this final topic, we'll then go back and review all six topics and the votes that have been lodged. We'll then move on to my favourite part of the segment. I'll be keeping score of who's won exactly which debates and giving you a total uh, on what each speaker has achieved in terms of their appealing to you on multiple arguments. The moment you guys are ready at the back SMS tabulators to go to the first question and its points, uh, it's, it's marked. Feel free to throw it up and we'll just have a look straight away. It was the social networking is so popular now. There we go. The topic. That social networking is so popular now that using the internet to communicate with the majority of users requires that you pay admission. The affirmative won that quite comfortably. Congratulations, Max. Congratulations, Roger. It was just that 
And uh, Frank wasn't here, so it was just the two of you. Well done, you guys. By a whopping, we can either say 66% or 24 votes to 12, whichever way you choose to look at it. Our second topic, the cloud computing is just another fad technology. A decision to adopt it will be reversed once people understand security risks are too high. Whoa! An overwhelming win by Max. And Scott. 89%. Don't be shy, Max and Scott. Give us a wave. Put your hand. Yeah! Woo, okay. Talk number three. Educating users on information security, if it was going to work, it would have worked by now. Or now. I know, 215 responses are very impressive in a room that doesn't contain many more than 215 people. <laughs> someone, someone really voted with there. We'll see how this next vote went before. No, I, you know. My favourite electoral result ever was when Augusto Pinochet ran for the president of Chile in uh, the late 1980s, and he won 98.9% of the vote. When it was revealed to him that in certain provinces he'd won more than 100% of the vote, his response was... Yes, they want me so much there, people chose to break the law to vote for me more than once. <laughs> a few less people voted this time around, but the topic was educating users on information security. If it was going to work, it would have worked by now. We have 33% on that topic. Uh, sorry, 33 votes versus 22, 60% to 40%. Congratulations, Marcus, Roger and Tim have won that debate. Yes, round of applause. Marcus. Roger and Tim. Mm. Our next topic. I'll need a day to read this. The internet users are making a conscious decision to ignore good security advice. In doing so, it's an entirely rational thing to do from an economic perspective. Blah, 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 blah. Indirect cost of security, usually greater than the direct cost they suffer from being attacked, so they reject the bargain offered by security advisors. It's a, um, it's a topic that's going to be available um, in book form. <laughs> in instalments over, <laughs> over the next month. When you're ready, give me those numbers. <laughs> yeah, well, there's, I noticed there were four people on the affirmative for this. <laughs> and they got four votes. <laughs> uh, however, the winning team was Paul, Max, Marcus and Alistair. Paul, Max, Marcus and Alistair, congratulations. Please give them a round of applause, people. Don't be shy. They are the winners of your second last debate. That information overload has desensitised the community to the point where security planning is no longer a priority. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, the uh <laughs> Yeah. Mm. No, Marcus, what, what people were so passionate about that second vote and they used their hands so hard, it was around this time that cramp and fatigue started to set in. And I could see people in the audience reaching for their phones going, must vote, must vote, 
Can't vote. I have to go with the numbers I'm given. Bad luck, Scott, Frank and Paul. If only another four people had voted for you, you would have won. By the narrowest of margins. But it's been won by Max. Marcus. And uh, Alistair, well done there, Alistair, on the winning side there. Or oh, well done, Alistair, managing to get your mates to rig that vote somehow. Okay, we're up to our final topic, and it is that cybersecurity activism and vigilantism enhances security. On current trends, there will be about negative 30 votes cast <laughs> for this top. Whoa, we've rocketed back up to 10. You see, if you guys, if the affirmative, if you just split your vote over the last two debates a bit more effectively, you could have won both of them, but that's the way it goes. It is a yes to Max, well done. To Roger, well done. To Jamie, picked up a yes there. And Marcus as well. So give me, chat amongst yourselves for a couple of seconds. Give these guys a substantial round of applause. Keep it going for a second, because I just need to tab my figures here. I'm pretty sure that I have, yes, one, two, I have. Okay. Three debaters achieved a 25% success rate. They were the very, very passionate Paul Gamp. Stand up, Paul, don't be shy. The man who doubted himself, Tim Redhead. It turns out we just caused him. No. And the man for all seasons who was happy to debate on topics he knew nothing about. One from four, Scott McIntyre. Well done. Okay. On 33 and a third percent, or one out of three, congratulations, Jamie Gillespie. On 40 percent, getting towards almost what would be called a pass mark at university. Alastair McGibbon. Congratulations, Alastair. 60% success rate, not bad for someone who admitted they make things that suck. Roger Dingledine, you won three out of five. Congratulations, Roger. He started slowly by not being involved in the first debate, then losing the second one, then came home with a head of steam to pick up four out of five or 80%. Marcus Ranham, well done. And on 100% of the vote, five debates, five victories, Mac Kilger. Well done, Max. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please thank all our panel. What a fantastic little exchange of ideas that was. That is Speed Debating Done for Oz 2010. Enjoy the rest of your afternoon. There's a closing ceremony about to take place. Enjoy the rest of the conference. I look forward to seeing you next year. Please give these guys another big round of applause. That was fantastic, gentlemen. Very well done.